Welcome to Beautiful Botswana, the travel podcast, where we aim to travel around Botswana and learn about this wonderful safari destination as we chat with experts, safari professionals and safari legends, as we share stories, recommendations and help you plan your Botswana holiday. Botswana, the travel podcast. Joining me today for episode number two is a man who's been a Mound resident since 1984. Him and his wife are very much part of the Mound landscape and his role as senior research fellow at the University of Botswana's Okavango Research Institute means that he's definitely considered an expert on the Okavango and, and the region. Mike is a, an, an ecologist who particularly is interested in the hydrology of the Delta and that's what he's joining me today to talk about. So welcome, Mr. Mike Murray Hudson. Thanks, Tessa. Uh, good to be here. Have I got that right, Mike? Are you are you doctor? Have I got that one wrong? I, I'm doctor, yeah. But it does. I really don't. Um, I don't like to be called doctor. <laughs> I like to be called Mike. Students all call me Doctor Mike because I insist on being called Mike, and they can't let go of the formality. Well, Dr. Mike is here to join, joining us today to talk about hydrological changes in the Okavango Delta. And so today's episode is focused on that layer beneath what we see when we look at the glossy images of the Okavango. It is a beautiful place. And Mike's joining me today to talk a little bit at a little deeper level about what those floodwaters mean for the area, what we see, um, its, its importance in in the area and its importance over time. So thank you so much, Mike, for joining us to talk about this. I think anyone in Maun um, is always trying to pick your brain on, on floods. It's it's sort of the general chat around the fireside in Maun, isn't it? For the people of Maun, the, the incoming flood every year is perhaps the most significant event in their lives. And so, yeah, it, it's a very hot topic usually, especially um, if there have been some uh, unexpected or unanticipated um, strangenesses, uh, like, for example, the, the very poor inflow last year and, and the very reduced amount of flooding there was. People in Maun are keenly um, interested in in what's happening with the water because it affects everybody's livelihoods um, in every single way you can imagine, not only economically, but also from a subsistence point of view. Indeed. And at the moment, there's a uh, hot bet on the go via a Facebook group about when the, the flood will cross the marker, which has been named as the Old Bridge and Mound. I know you have long recorded flood data at your property um, outside of Mound. Uh, what do you reckon the prediction is on the flood arrival 2020? I honestly have no idea. Um, the, we, we've done some modeling of it, but we use a different marker. We use the old bridge in Mound, which is the bridge that um, crosses the river near Mound Secondary School. Okay. And the mod the modeling suggests that the water will arrive there in very early July. 
Um, so you're telling me my early May um, bets are wasted? Probably. <laughs> uh, it, it, it really depends where you um, draw the line. And uh, for a lot of people, a lot of people in Mound, the most critical arrival point is really when where the Boro meets the Tamalakani um, at the junction. And in, in 2004, which was a similar kind of year to this one, where the previous flood had been very, very small, um, water took 45 days to move from the Boro Junction to the old bridge. Not the sure. old bridge, the, the Mound Bridge. Yep. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So basically moving through Mound took a month and a half. It's, it's within spitting distance of the buffalo fence right now. And I think that makes everyone think that its arrival in Mound is imminent. Um, and you're saying that's not the case. Probably not. It, it'll take a little while. It, it moves quickly between the fence and the junction because the gradient on, on that little section of, of channel between the Kunyeri Fault and the Tamalakani Fault, the gradient there is a bit steeper. The channel has been dredged. In, it was dredged in the late 1960s, early 1970s. And so the flow there tends to be quite quick. Um, but then it hits the fault line, the Tamalakani fault line, and slows right down. In fact, it usually flows um, to the northeast for uh, five to seven days before it even starts flowing in the in the southwesterly direction along that fault line. We get water in front of my house before um, people in Matlapaneng uh, get water. Well, that leads me well into my next question. My question for you is, could, could you tell us a little bit about your background in Maun? What brought you here back in the 80s? And um, what, what's your story of, of living alongside the Okavango is? Okay, well, it's a it's a circuitous and um, and uh, stochastic, to use a hydrological term, story. I I started out life as a consulting hydrogeologist, and was just coming to the end of my first contract when an old uh, university friend of mine dropped in and said, "Hi, uh, I've got an underwater camera. Let's go to the Okavango Delta and take photos of hippos." So I said, okay, and we both kind of threw a couple of bags in the back of my Land Rover and brought some scuba gear up here and uh, bought a small boat and filled it up with the bags that were in the back of the Land Rover and the scuba gear and headed off into the middle of the Delta. Um, and we spent a couple of years uh, trying to not take photos of hippos underwater um, because we were very frightened and they're very dangerous. And we ended up, that those two years ended up in the production of a, of a coffee table kind of book on the Delta and really made me feel more at home here than I ever did in the south of the country, which is where I grew up. I love water. I love water more than anything else, pretty much, except my wife. Uh, and so I feel as if this is um, 
something that's worth looking after. And um, that's kind of what I set out to try and do. I spent probably two decades, nearly two decades of time consulting in the environmental field, doing management plans for game reserves, for controlled hunting areas, working for um, the Zambezi River Commission, all kinds of different consulting work till 2000 when I um, decided to go back to school because I wanted to work more closely with wetlands. I did my master's in 2000 and came and joined the Okananga Research Institute and have been working there ever since. At, at ORI, I'm, I'm mostly focused on trying to evaluate potential impacts of um, climate change and upstream development on delta ecology. Fantastic. So in terms of talking about the Okavango, you're a person who knows it intimately in terms of both having been here over the age, the, let's say ages, and that sounds like <laughs> I'm aging you. Yes. <laughs> it is aging. You're someone who's, who's seen it over the decades um, and has, has yep. known the Delta over the decades from a experiential perspective as well as from an academic um, understanding of the of the processes. So I think that is what makes you an interesting person to chat to generally. And I'm very grateful for the fact that you've joined me today to talk about this a little bit more. All right. So Mike, let's chat about 2019 and what happened in the area. And as you said earlier, there's a emotional response around yeah, that's a something like the floodwaters with the people who live here. But let's look at it from a it's more scientific perspective of what was the value of what happened last year, why did it happen, and what was important about it? I, I think it, what's really important for people to, to realize is that what, what, what did happen last year was that there was a, a regional drought. For the first time in my memory, um, the Angolan province of Kwando Kubango declared a drought. I haven't known them do that before. The rainfall in our catchment, 2018-2019 rainy season, was uh, the lowest it's been since 1981. It was a, a major dry episode in southern African uh, rainfall. The result of that was that we had a very, very low inflow to the delta. You can measure the flood in terms of, of two sort of main attributes. One is how much, what total volume of water flows into the delta. The other is how much area does that inflowing water cover in the delta. We suspect, but we haven't been able to fully check yet, that the area that was flooded last year, the area of the delta, that was underwater last year was the smallest we've recorded so far. I think a very important thing to keep in mind is that it's been, it's been low before. In 1995-96, which was the lowest inflow on record, our records start around 1934. So um, 
um, in, in 80 years, 1995-96 was the lowest on record. Things were dry here then, very, very dry. Um, they were also dry in the 80s, very, very dry. In fact, the Tamalakani uh, riverbed was um, nothing but sand. There weren't even any plants on it. So th that gives you a bit of context. The, th this river does that. The, the delta dries. It, in, in response to low years, we get limited flooding. Um, and that is a critical part of delta ecology. You need to have years in which parts of the seasonally flooded floodplains don't go underwater. A lot of the need for that is linked to the production of grass for grazing wildlife and grazing livestock. If you flood land in this part of the world for too long, you end up, um, the, the vegetation ends up being dominated by sedges, which have a very low uh, nutrient value. And um, as a consequence of that, the, the grazing potential of the whole of northern Botswana is, is fairly radically reduced. So you need dry periods. Uh, you also need wet periods, like the, the big flood of 2010, 2011, that was really important in pushing back the encroachment of floodplains by trees, uh, which also reduces the area of grassland that's available to grazers. These extremes that, that we see in the way that the hydrology in the delta behaves are really critical ecological drivers and, and they control the availability of grazing for wildlife and for livestock, by doing that, uh, they keep our tourism industry going, basically. Um, it, the, the variation is what's important, not the absolute amounts. Is that variation on, important on a seasonal basis as well? I mean, I'm assuming if... Yes. If, the, if you need that time of dry to regenerate... Um, Obviously, a bigger flood means that the, the certain areas are going to stay wetter for longer in the year. A smaller flood, you're going to have at, at a particular location, you're going to have a shorter wet time of the year. Well, yes, there, there are, there's another critical attribute of, of the flood in the Delta, and that is that it arrives outside of the rainy season. The flood is spreading now. It's, it's expanding now, and we're our rains basically stopped the day before yesterday, and we had late rains this year. So what's really important is that you get this expansion of the flooding in, in winter, and around uh, September, October, the flood starts to recede. And as the flood... So th now we're talking about variation on a, on a seasonal basis, on an, on an intra-annual, on an within-the-year basis. Um, the, the receding flood allows the, all those grazing animals that I was talking about to um, bridge the, the period between when, when the rains start and the previous rainy season by providing uh, flood recession-grown grass. Flood receding bridges the gap between June and uh, the end of November when the rains start again and new grass grows. 
So that internal, in, within-year variation is absolutely critical for, for, again, for our grazing ungulates. Different to the, the between-year variation, which is the variation between, for example, the very low flood of last year and the slightly fatter one of this year. And it's also different, the ecological effects are also different from, there's, there's another cycle of bigger and smaller flooding events that runs on, on a period of about 70 years. We have a, a, a really long and big cycle of, of um, periods in which there are wetter years for about uh, increasing flows for sort of 35 years and then decreasing flows for th sort of 35 years. And that, that variation is, is critical in terms of uh, maintaining habitat, maintaining the, the seasonal floodplains and maintaining areas that are free of uh, woody encroachment, if that makes sense. Yeah, that does. Um, where are we on that sort of longer term cycle? Because I think with last year's drought, everyone said, well, you know, now it's 70 years of drought. Um, and I think that's probably why there's so much um, emotional value being put on this year's flood, because it sort of says, well, everyone's going, well, you see, there is at least some water coming down. So where are we on that long cycle? Well, it's, it's difficult to say, of course, um, because there's a, a, a classical kind of mindset about um, the way the environment behaves, uh, which is called stationarity. And stationarity kind of is, assumes that things will continue in the future as they have gone in the past. Now, with climate change, um, we really cannot make that assumption anymore. And so uh, we can expect to see trends that we didn't see before and um, we don't really know what those are going to be like but theoretically if we you know if if the the 70 stroke 80 year wet dry cycle carries on we should have been in a wetting period and we should still be in a wetting period that is something that is wetter than the long-term average I have to point out that during the middle of the last big wetting period, I think the peak of which was in 1968-69, there were also very, there were years of very, very low floods right in the middle of all of that. So it's important to recognize that on the long-term trend, um, there will be superimposed a huge amount of variation between years. And that that between inter-annual, between-year variation is just as important as the long-term variation and it's just as important as the, as the seasonal variation. It seems like with the current situation we're dealing with, uh, a little bit of long-term optimism about the future wet experiences in the Okavango is great. And so thanks for sharing that. I'm pleased to be able to say that in general, we're looking for a few more wet years still. But this raises the next question, which is we're talking about talking to people who are traveling and these people are coming to the Okavango with a coffee table book potentially in hand and um, an idea of what the Okavango represents. And 
the name itself is incredibly emotive and when we hear it we can automatically place ourselves on a beautiful lagoon full of lily pads so I think it's really great that you're highlighting just the importance of what these ecological changes are so that when people are traveling and experiencing a slightly different from picture perfect experience they can also understand that that in itself is a unique moment in time and a unique and important ecological happening yeah I, that's absolutely right it's really important the kind of classical mental picture of the delta that people have is something that's based very much around a static large body of water somewhere in the middle of the desert. I think that it's really important for people to understand that the reason that we have amazing wildlife populations and the reason that we have dynamic and amazing populations of birds is because the system changes. The system changes all the time. It's the change that we should be protecting and the change that we should be celebrating it. We shouldn't be static systems of sterile systems. And the, and the Okavango is almost the diametric opposite of this. It's extremely dynamic. And despite the fact that, there, that it's a very low nutrient system, it's extremely productive. And the productivity is what supports all of this diversity of, of wildlife and of birds and of aquatic uh, fauna. I think that people should come with that idea in mind. They're coming to look at a vibrant and dynamic ecosystem that is still functioning in a way that has been hardly impacted at all by the activities of people. That's something... That's something that, as you say, should really be celebrated. In my first episode, Simon Byron commented on how, as the Okavango Basin, how little it has been impacted by man and how there are, there are no dams and how the restriction on the flood flow, there is impact, but it's very minimal when you compare it to European or American rivers systems that are so different from what they were decades ago. And that is what we should be celebrating when we see the Okavango, whether we see it in a dry time of year, when we see it in a dry year, whether we see it in a high flood year. It's that moment in time that is unadulterated that is worth celebrating. Yes, absolutely. And worth trying to look after and protect. So, Mike, in terms of travel, obviously, experiencing the Delta and the beauty of the Delta in the natural world is an important reason why people travel here. But the wildlife and wildlife movements is obviously another very big draw card. What are the implications of a drier 2019 and a wetter 2020 on wildlife movement and wildlife predicted wildlife sightings going forward? As I sort of hinted at a little bit earlier, we've had a slightly above average rainy season, but it has run late and most of the, the big charismatic wildlife species like elephant and, and the big grazers are going to still be out in the hinterlands making the most of what, what's left of the summer grass growth. The flood is not late particularly and so in a month or two I imagine that grazers and the elephants will start moving back in towards where the water is and the, where the water is now is going to be 
in the Okavango Delta, in the Linyanti Delta, and along the Chobe. In the next couple of months, I, ex I, I would expect that we can see a movement of wildlife back to the surface water sources that will replace the, the rain-filled pans and so on. With that process, we get these incredible concentrations of wildlife around the a-seasonal wetlands in, in um, northern Botswana. I know that talking about what's going to happen in Okavango during 2020, well, lockdowns are happening and people are feeling frustrated that they can't travel. So let's also talk as much as we can about what the implications are going forward, end of the year and into next year in terms of population growth and population changes of the key species. Are we expecting to see good wildlife going forward or will the drought have given wildlife populations a bit of a knock? That's difficult to say. You know, wildlife populations in this part of Africa are very well adapted to living under wildly, what human beings consider wildly varying climate. And so one year of drought might lead to a smaller production of calves for the grazing species in this particular season. Herd wildlife, wildlife species that live in big herds have very rapid recovery from reductions like that. And so I don't think that one year of, of relatively low rainfall and a very small flood is going to have a particularly drastic effect on wildlife populations. In fact, if you think about the livestock, we didn't see a huge die-off of livestock. There were, there were some mortality, but uh, it wasn't anything like the scale of the 1990s or the, or the 1980s. So I would say that the wildlife has probably been able to survive it a little bit better. I'm not sure. You know, obviously census data will, will give us a much better idea of that. Yeah, and as you said, the data for last year is not out yet. You know, it, it takes time to generate. And, and, but it is interesting as, a guy, as somebody like you who's seen it through the years and has seen what we experienced last year happen previously. I think there's a certain amount of non-scientific knowledge <laughs> that you can bring to the table as well. Yeah. Mike, when talking about the hydrological variation on the delta's health and delta's cycles, are there any other disturbances that, you know, looking at the next little while we need to be cognizant of? I mean, are recent fire activities going to be something that affects what we can expect coming up? Any other sort of activity that would have an impact on what people can expect the Delta to be looking like in the next few years? In the next few years, not really. Um, we're in the middle of trying to put in place a revised fire management strategy. The work that we did in the early 2000s on fire in floodplains really indicated that there was very little effect of fire on species diversity and on production. Uh, in fact, the fire as a driver was very definitely lower down the scale than hydrology. Hydrology is by far the strongest driver of the ecology of the floodplains in the Delta. People have, have a, I'm not sure what it is, there's, there's a, a, a very subjective um, view of fire and what it does in ecology. I think that it's probably somewhat overplayed. I think that it's not as drastic a thing as it seems to be. It, human beings don't like disorder. They don't like to see things that don't look 
organized and functional and so on. And so when we see a fire, we all that we really see is the damage. I think that Delta ecosystems have been surviving and adapted to fire for probably millennia, if not um, millions of years. And while I'm, I definitely wouldn't argue with the case that I think that fire frequency has probably increased over the last couple of decades, I don't think the intensity has increased. I also don't think we really understand it that well yet. It's an important ecological driver and we, we shouldn't just want to stop it because it doesn't look nice. So again, that person who happens to be traveling at a period in time where there is a fire, yeah. again, like we're saying with the water levels, that is the moment in time that you are witnessing and that's, that's part of a dynamic system. Some fires are more natural than others, and, but just because it's not pretty doesn't mean it's not important. Absolutely. It's also, it's also really important to remember that man is not unnatural. You know, we're part of the thing. Man is a part of the ecosystem. You know, when you say fire is not unnatural, the implication is that if it's, if it's set by man, it is unnatural, and that's not entirely true. What I would say about fire is that fire as an ecological process in the Delta is very important, and we would not want to remove it completely from the system, because then we would run into problems like they've had in um, the Western Hemisphere, where uh, cut down on fire and the build-up of fuel was so great that when fire did come, it pushed systems past their tipping points. It was Fires were so intense and so hot that they changed the ecology of the place, in some cases irreversibly. So it's, I, I just think, I just want to say that it's important to recognize that fire is an intrinsic process in a delta ecosystem. And it's part of keeping the delta what we all know and love it is it is a yes. part it is one of the drivers as you mentioned yep absolutely are there any other key drivers that you think people should be aware of in terms of looking at the ecosystem and understanding these variations and you know that sort of as i said earlier beneath the skin of the delta a little bit more an attribute we are starting to wonder about is the levels of dissolved oxygen in the water classically wetlands are places where there's very little dissolved oxygen in water and the delta is no exception. In the last decade or so, we've been hearing increased anecdotal reports of things like die-offs of fish. When you look at the distribution of dissolved oxygen in the delta, it's almost all over the delta. It's right at the margin of comfort for most fish species. So any slight reduction in dissolved oxygen may push different species of fish beyond their comfort zone and make them more likely to die or make them stressed enough that they're prone to infection. We've been seeing or hearing about more fish die-offs. When I say more, it's really difficult. The amount of observation, the number of people looking at the way the Delta is working and the number of people out there has increased radically in the last 10 to 15 years. So it's difficult to say if there genuinely are more fish die-offs or if it's just a case that more people have been noticing them. 
Dissolved oxygen is, is something that is uh, very strongly related to temperature. It's also very strongly related to the uh, amount of organic matter in the water. And that this is causing increased oxygen demand in the water itself through microbial activity, which means less dissolved oxygen for fish. So that's something that we are a bit concerned about. And OCACOM, the tripartite, the three-nation permanent commission on Okavango Basin, has started putting in place a water quality monitoring system for the whole basin. Part of that is looking at what is the content of suspended solids in the water and what are the nutrient levels in the water. Hopefully this will give us some idea about what is driving the fish dials. And what if there was fish dial for an extended period of time and an overall reduction in biomass of fish in the, in the Okavango, what would be the potential implications of that, sort of the ripple effect of that going outwards? It's very difficult to say that there will be a ripple effect at all. Monitor fish populations at uh, Naracha, which is in sort of in the middle of the delta. We've been doing that for 16 years strongest relationship that we can observe is that fish populations are driven by the preceding three to five years of hydrology. So again, the strongest ecological driver of, of fish populations appears to be hydrology. The, the maintenance of the variation in inflow is something that not only controls what plants grow in the floodplains, but it also controls what food is available to fish the different um, feeding strategies of the fish can be met and that drives population fluctuations we might see in different species of fish. I would also say that the fish populations of the delta are extremely resilient and very dynamic. A bit like the wildlife, they are adapted to taking advantage of temporarily good conditions engender very rapid population growth. And so I think that we would expect to see rapid recovery of fish populations that may have declined under a certain set of conditions. When those conditions change, I think that, that recovery would be re very, very rapid. It's a dynamic system. This just highlights how dynamic the system is and how many factors there are that influence Okavango and how many species or how many different um, elements of the environment are then impacted by that hydrology? So thank you so much for, for trying to, um, so succinctly explaining to us how the Okavango works. It's a huge subject. I mean, you've spent, you've yeah. spent almost three decades studying it. There's so much out there. There's so much to talk about. So it's not easy to fit that into a, um, a conversation. But thank you so much, Mike, for that that synopsis. Is there anything else that you feel is important to let people listening know about the Okavango in terms of these variations and the ecology of the system and its health as a whole? I think people, let's put it like this, that tourism, if it's carefully managed, is, is one of the most low-impact, non-consumptive forms of resource use that, that we can do in systems like this. Because we're, we're not good at um, managing dynamic systems, we always want to change the dynamism because our infrastructure isn't flexible enough or our, 
or our economics aren't flexible enough or whatever. I think that tourists should see themselves in the role of a non-consumptive resource user in a system like this. And uh, I, I think that it's important to bear in mind that aspect of resource use doesn't only apply to our Okavango Delta down here, but it, it also applies to our the catchment of the Okavango in Angola, the, the entire Kavango River in Namibia. One of the best ways to use this system without having a, an excessive impact on it is, is tourism. And the tourist should feel as if they are contributing to the sustenance of the system by by coming here and by spending money, by giving the non-consumptive ecosystem services value. You know, we can manage tourists, I think, uh, in, in general terms, as long as there's a bit of a vision and as long as there's a framework of regulations about practice in place. We can manage tourism, and, and it kind of comes back to the original definition of ecotourism, where one of the fundamental principles of ecotourism is that you contribute to the economy of the place that, you, that you're visiting. You're not a drain on that economy, you're a contributor to it. I, that's what I would say to, to prospective Okavango tourists, that they should feel good about giving value to non-consumptive use of, of wetland ecosystems. Thank you so much, Mike. That's such a great message, and I think it's a really great message um, to end with. There's just one thing you mentioned earlier that I think is an important thing to also highlight, that despite us focusing on and using the word Okavango, that this is such a huge interconnected system. So the Savuti, the Chobi, they're all part of the Okavango system, even if they may not be a geographical location that we call the Okavango. Um, so I just wanted to put that in there, that this, this is a, we're talking about an ecological system, not necessarily a geographical location. Yeah, uh, that's absolutely correct. Uh, you know, here at Ori, we, the, the research program that I'm part of is called Ecosystems Dynamics. And um, our focus is what we call the Northern Botswana ecosystem. From a wildlife point of view, the, the Okavango is just one cogwheel in that ecosystem. Um, the movements and the, the heterogeneity of resources, of forage, of, of landscapes um, in northern Botswana, the, the wetlands that we have, which are iconic and charismatic and beautiful, are just a part of a, a much larger and, and, and much more productive savanna wildlife ecosystem I think at present there there is no parallel. We, there is n there is no system that is still open that is as large as as um, this chunk of uh, Southern African savanna. Well, thank you so much for that insight. Because essentially, I have started this podcast and started Beautiful Botswana in order to share the message of what it is that we're offering, and I think that's such a great message. Um, is that if people are in post-corona world going to be discerning about where they travel, 
that this is one of the last or if not the last area like this in Africa that is is as dynamic and uninterrupted um, as it is. And I think that that's really what I'm trying to do with this podcast is spread the positivity hmm. um, about what we can offer people. Yeah, it's going to be here for a long time still. Exactly. And obviously, conservation of it going forward is is critical. As you mentioned earlier, it's worth protecting and saving. Um, but it's here, and that's, that's what we're trying to share and celebrate. One last thing. The other thing that we're trying to do here in the Okavango Basin uh, through Okacom uh, is to manage the basin, the whole basin, as a whole. And if there is any opportunity for anyone in the private sector or for tourists to support the activities of Okacom, they should uh, give it their very best shot because this is a, an initiative and an institution that I, they have a huge responsibility and um, they need all the help they can get. Okacom is doing some really great stuff. That, that's, I would just put, a, put that out there. I'll include a link to Ocacom and uh, more resources about Ocacom in the episode notes so that anyone wanting to learn more about it and how they can contribute, um, they can do that through the episode notes. Great. So, Mike, you are not only a scientist. We've <laughs> discovered through this conversation about how much of a deep lover of the Okavango you are. So are you ready for my snapshot session where I'm going to ask you some things more from a safari perspective? Sure. So my first question for you, what is your most valued piece of safari equipment and why? I think binoculars are probably the best thing. Binoculars and a box of matches. <laughs> you, can do, you can go far with binoculars and a box of matches. That sounds like some very good advice. I have been in environments where the box of matches have been missing and I have, I have noticed their absence. Yeah. Yeah, it's important to have matches, for sure. But, but if you want to really get into the environment, the binoculars are essential. Which one destination would you recommend a first-time visitor visit? Wow. If you're me, I, I'm a water person, and so I would head right into the middle of the Okavango. I would go to a, a water camp somewhere in the middle of the delta. Um, but that's because I like water. And if you prefer buffalo or zebra, then you need to go and look for grasslands. Um, which one resource would you recommend that someone coming to Botswana should know about? Whether that's a, a book, a website, a um, other form of media? Um, Robert's birds. <laughs> that's, I would say that's one of the most important things. A, a good field bird book. The, the birds in the Okavango are without parallel. There are nearly 500 different species of birds here and the birding in this place is absolutely fantastic. You know, when I say Robert's Birds, I think there's an app you can get for your phone that has bird calls and maybe even recognition software, I'm not sure. So with um, <laughs> bird books are about as subjective as trying to predict the flood arrival in Maun. Um, and you say you're a Roberts man. I'm, I use anything I can lay my hands on. And I'm really bad at my birds. The Basel fans will take that because they use Roberts. 
<laughs> no, it, I have them all. We ha we have them all, and so everyone has its own purpose. When you want to find get information about birds, you need Roberts. When you want to find out what bird it is, then you need a safari. A sundowner is a quintessential safari experience. What is your tip or one piece of advice to have the ultimate sundown in Botswana? Hmm. You need to find a lagoon that has an island on the east, so you or a floodplain, so you can watch the sun go down across the water. That's a really a very settling experience. And in fact, if you can coincide it with a full moon, that's always a good thing too. Last one, Mike. Post lockdown, when we're allowed out to explore again, if you had a weekend to explore locally, where would you head? We're talking about kind of June. Uh, I'm, you know, my plan, my plan would be to get in the boat and head up the river and try and find some spot where there isn't anybody else. I'm a water person, as I said before. Well, thank you so much for those insights, Mike, and thank you so much for your time. I have lived here for um, over 10 years and today learned something new. So thank you so much for sharing that. And I hope that this is not the last time we get to sit and chat about the Okavango and its dynamics. Sure. Dr. Mike Murray-Hudson from the Okavango Research Institute at the University of Botswana. Thank you once again for joining me on this journey and taking this step with me. I look forward to our next episode where we learn more about the people and the projects of Okavango.